one day closer, one day closer to Jesus. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, every, every knee on heaven and earth will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's in the name? Names are powerful. They used to be tied to what we did, what our occupation was. If your last name was Stone, maybe you had in your family a stonemaker, somebody that carved things out of stone. If your last name was Smith, you might have belonged to someone who was a smithy or a blacksmith, worked in iron and creating things. If your last name was Baker, it's possible that you had someone in the family that baked goods and provided goods for the community. If your last name was Thatcher, it may have been that you had somebody that, that did roofs and they put thatch on the roof or on the floor, whatever had to, had to be done. If your last name was Macintosh, you sold apples and computers, <laughs> evidently. A lot of us grew up with different kinds of names. Some of us grew up with nicknames. And, and they weren't always fun, but we probably, you probably had a nickname. Maybe you were called Shorty or Bubba or Stinky. Maybe you are called Four Eyes, uh, Half Pint. Uh, I heard the, this name the other night at a soccer game, Android Andrus. Android Andrus. Man, that was awesome. I had these kids behind me yelling this out, and, and uh, uh, Aiden Andrus was just running up down the field, and he was an android. I tell you, this guy was on fire. It was amazing to watch. It was so cool, so cool. Most of the nicknames that we get are a lot of fun. Sometimes they hurt a little bit. Sometimes names are just out and out confusing. We just have trouble dealing with somebody's name or, or uh, uh, how to say it correctly. Uh, when I was growing up on the farm, we had, we had uh, CB radios in the tractors and the trucks. And this was a time when CB radios, uh, we didn't have closed channels. So when you spoke on the CB radio, not only did the people that you wanted to hear it, hear it, but if the atmospheric conditions were good, there was something called skip. And, and your signal could actually skip on the atmosphere and be heard in California or out on the East Coast someplace. Well, all of us had handles. We had names so that when somebody called somebody else, you knew who you were asking for. Break one nine for uh, the Rolling Stone. That was my brother Tim. He loved rock and roll music. Or break for uh, my brother Jay. We called him Turbo because he was a mechanic. My dad loved to drive the big trucks around the farm, and so he was called Jockey Stick because he liked to shift the gears. Mom had trouble at times. She would get a little confused, and she gets on the radio one day, and again, this is going to be heard across the nation, coast to coast. Breaker one nine for that jockey strap. <laughs> the response came loud and clear from Dad, stick, stick, it is jockey stick. Mom said, whatever, whatever. What's in the name? There is one name that has the power to change lives, to transform lives, to save lives. That's the name of Jesus. Again, that, that name of Jesus in which every knee will bow in heaven and earth, confessing him as Lord. What's in a name? Chuck Colson. You see his picture on the screen, Chuck Colson. Many of you will have to dig back in your memory banks to remember who he is. If you were my age, you certainly lived through that period. Chuck Colson was the uh, uh, political advisor, special counselor to President Nixon during the Nixon years. He was only with him from 69 to 70. And it was during that year of the Watergate scandal, all that happened through that. Nixon was, or uh, Colson was a part of that. Because of the Watergate scandal, Colson was arrested. He spent seven months in a federal penitentiary. But before going to the jail, before going going to prison, he became a strong, a very strong Christian, began a ministry that's well-known, Christian Ministry Fellowship, and very powerful, uh, strong yet to this day. Years later, Colson was able to attend a White House Correspondents' Dinner in D.C., and he was there with a, a good friend of his, a writer for Time Magazine, also a Christian guy by the name of David Aikman. 
Now, the dinner was held at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Colson went into the lobby, and he remembered when he was there in days with Nixon, the president. He remembered the reception room being filled with all kinds of dignitaries. Everybody who was anybody would be in that room. I mean, this was the gathering of all the big shots, all the big wigs, celebrities and dignitaries. Today, or in that meeting when Colson was there, they're waiting to see then-President Bush. Noise from the hallway signaled the fact that the press had arrived, and, and surely the president was on his way. He was coming. The noise grew louder. There was a lot more confusion taking place. They were excited about the prospect of seeing face-to-face in the flesh President Bush. Nobody else could draw that kind of attention. The crowd came, and Colson was finally able to see who was causing all of the commotion, who was causing all of the ruckus, all the riot, and it was not, it was not President Bush. The number one celebrity... At that year's correspondence dinner, dinner was Marla Maples. Marla Maples was the mistress of that time, of at that time, millionaire Donald Trump. People clamored to gawk. She was well known for being well known. She was the mistress of the year. So what's in a name? Two weeks later, Charles Colson went to visit a prison in Columbia, South Carolina. It was Easter on death row. Colson was there to see an inmate by the name of Rusty Woomer. He was to be executed in 10 days. All the appeals had failed. Rusty's case was, was extraordinary. Of all the people on death row, Rusty was the most lost. You would find him in a cell, curled up in a fetal position, lying in his own filth. There was a man by the name of Bob McAllister, he was the deputy chief counselor for the governor of South Carolina. He was a Christian. He would walk by Rusty Woomer's cell, and one day he walked by and he tried to get him to say the name Jesus. Just say the word Jesus. And for an hour, McAllister tried to get him to do this. Finally, at the end of an hour, Rusty said Jesus. The next day, the next day, McAllister came by the cell, and he saw Rusty sitting up on his bed, all cleaned up. His cell was cleaned, and he said, Rusty said, Jesus lives here in this cell with me, and I've got to keep it clean for him. Woomer went along to lead guards, inmates, other prison officials to Jesus. He became McAllister's closest friend. McAllister tried to stop the execution, but all of the appeals had failed. The day before the execution, Rusty asked for, uh, asked for a, a favor, and he asked that um, Bob McAllister spend the evening with him in that execution cell. McAllister came. They spent the evening singing songs and hymns and praising God and praying together. Woomer was at total peace with the situation. He asked the executioner to be brought into his cell, and he brought him in, and, and Rusty said to him, said, I want you to understand that, that I, I know why you're doing what you're doing and why you have to do that, but I want you to know so much that Jesus loves you. The executioner did not want to leave the cell. He had to be led out into the area where pretty soon his hand was going to be placed on the lever that he would pull down and execute Rusty Woomer. Rusty's last words were, I'm sorry. I claim Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. My only wish is that everyone in the world could feel the love that I have felt from him. So what's in a name? What power is there in a name? Is it in the celebrity in Washington, D.C. Hilton, where 2,500 people gawk and stared at the mistress of the year? Or is it in a prison cell where a man looks death square in the face and he declares his faith in Jesus Christ? 
The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 10, and he said, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by your heart that you believe and are justified, made right with God. It is with your mouth that you profess, you confess, you declare your faith, and you are saved. Look at that word confess, profess, declare. It comes from the Greek ancient word homo Homo means same. Legeo means to say. To declare or to confess, to profess, means to speak in agreement with, to say the same thing. Paul is declaring, Paul is telling us that when we declare who Jesus is, we agree with what the Bible says about who Jesus is. It's also part of what we do in order to be saved. It wasn't as understood then as well as it is today. It's interesting, the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. If you take your Bibles and turn to that, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, we begin there in the text. It said, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who did the Son of Man, or who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Uh, others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus, okay. But, but you guys, you disciples, you've been with me all these years. You've seen the things that I've done. You've heard the things that I have taught. You, you, you've seen the miracles. Who do you say that I am? And ever the impetuous one, Peter responds first by saying, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by your own intellectualness, by your own ingenuity, by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you let loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, Mark Moore, who's written our book, Quest 52, makes three very important observations about that text. First thing he does, he draws our attention to what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Simon, now you're called Peter, Petros, which means small stone. And upon this rock, Petra, which means boulder, I will build my church. There has been a debate for years whether or not Jesus was saying upon Peter the foundation of the church would be built or upon the confession that he is Lord that, he would, that the church would be built. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. The, the other apostles and Peter as well were given the task of preaching the good news. As a matter of fact, we go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and it says that we are what? We are living stones. Living stones, which means all of us are involved, all of us are qualified, all of us are, are given the task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Moore draws our attention to the statement Jesus made when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. The word church comes from the ancient word ecclesia, which means called out once, called to an assembly. You are a part of a sacred gathering of believers. We make a common declaration of our faith of who Jesus Christ is. This is something that is not done anywhere else in all of history by mankind anywhere. It's done in the gathering of the saints. Right now, all over the world, all over the globe, Christians are gathering together to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And it's happening in small huts in Africa. It's happening in large cathedrals in the big city. It's happening in churches throughout the world. Christians are gathering together. They're the sacred assembly, the called out ones, the ecclesia, and they're declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus said that, Peter, you hold the keys of the kingdom. I want to share with you what Mark Moore says exactly about this. The keys 
The keys Jesus gave Peter represent the authority to lock or unlock the door of salvation. Peter, of course, is not the only one with that authority. In the 20th chapter of John, the same authority was given to all the apostles. In Matthew chapter 18, it extends to the Christian leaders in general. In fact, look at this. Look at this. This is all to be bold print. In fact, as a believer, you share that authority and responsibility to preach Jesus. You get that? You share that. You can announce his forgiveness to those who repent and make him Lord. Peter held the first set of keys, but all of us, all of us open the same set of doors, giving access, giving others access to Jesus. We have the same authority and the same responsibility, those same set of keys, to unlock the door to salvation that Peter and the other uh, early apostles had. We have that ability, that authority, that responsibility today. It's tempting to lay it at the feet of Tyson. That's Tyson's job. That's why we hired him, right? That's, he's supposed to do that. Well, that's why we have elders. They're, they're supposed to be involved in that. Isn't that correct? They do that. But you see, we've all been called to declare the life, the love, the work, the sacrifice, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. We've all been called to declare that. We've been given the mandate, as Jesus said before he left in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and make what? Disciples. We're going to all the world and make we're going to all the world, and we will make disciples. Thank you. Yes, that is our, that's our mandate. That's the declaration that we have is to make disciples. I want to challenge you this morning to declare Jesus. You're going to have a, a moment here in just a moment, an opportunity to share your story as well, what he's done for you. But let me ask you the question, what are we declaring? What do we declare? We declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. When someone comes forward, when someone comes into Tyson's office, my office, Ben's office, and, and we're talking with them about Jesus Christ and they accept Jesus Christ as Lord, we ask them to make that declaration, that, that great confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I surrender my life to Him. I accept Him as my Lord and Savior. But living out those words is just as important as saying those words. Peter is the first one to make that declaration. His name means rock. And in so many ways, Peter was a rock. He was loyal. He was brave. He was ostentatious at times. He, 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 he stood by Jesus most of the time in the worst of situations. He's a model of faith and devotion. We can see that in Peter. You know the story where the storm's on the sea and the disciples are in the, in the boat and, and Peter steps out onto the water to walk toward Jesus and he takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink and Jesus reaches down and, and pulls him out of the water. You know, Peter was the only one of those disciples in the boat who was willing to step out and go. He's the one who answered the question that Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And, and, and Peter answered immediately, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. You're thinking, yeah, but if you read down the text a little bit more, you see that in just in a few minutes, Jesus said, or Peter said something that's pretty embarrassing, kind of stupid. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, talking to Peter. But we still know that Peter was the only one to speak up. Even if the others were thinking this, he was the one that made the statement. He's a powerful example for us. So like Peter, we agree and we make this true statement. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's reminiscent of the declaration that God made in the burning bush there in the book of Exodus when he stood, when he had Moses standing on holy ground saying, uh, when Moses asked, who will I say has sent them? You tell them the I am. I am who I am going to be has sent you. It's similar to the amen at the end of the prayer where we say, may it be so. What does this declaration, what does this confession of faith mean? 
It means everything belonged to God. Guys, if you can, if you can reach it, reach around and pull out your billfold. Ladies, if you can get into that cavernous thing that you call a purse, find in there somehow. How you do this, I have no idea. I've dug around in my wife's purse, and it's the most scary thing in the world to do that, and, and find that wallet that you've got. We are his, and what we have is his. Everything in this wallet belongs to Jesus. My wife, my children, any other part of my family, the things that I call mine are his. My vehicles, my house, my bank account, all of those things. Everything that I own, everything that I think is mine is now in his hands. If he wants to take what's in my wallet, it is his. If, if God forbid that he should take my wife or my children, they are his, not mine. This is what Paul had in mind when he told Timothy, this is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I believe, the one in whom I have trusted. And I am confident, I am sure that he is able to guard what I have given to him and trusted to him until the day of his return. Declaring Jesus means that we are saying he has the ultimate control of our life. I'm going to let Jesus run my life. His priorities overtake my priorities. His will overtakes mine. His design for my life is greater than mine. His purpose for me is far beyond what I can imagine. But it's not always easy, is it? When Jesus says, give me everything, give me your life, we say, yeah, here it is, but man, i got to hold a few things back. There's some credit I want, God. There's some recognition I need, Jesus. Why should I give you everything? A lady by the name of Ruth Harms Calkin gets a little personal with us when she writes, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the in this limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You, you know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder? How would I react if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? When you declare Jesus, it means that you are not ashamed. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and the Greek alike. I am so pressed when I see people live out their faith. You've been to a restaurant, you're sitting down to eat, you see a family over here. It may just be a husband and wife, might be a husband and wife, kids, and they're holding hands and they're praying. Not, not ostentatiously, not arrogantly, not boastfully, they're just praying. When you declare the name of Jesus, you're agreeing with what God the Father in Scripture says about him. So why do we need to do this? Why do we need to declare and confess the name of Christ? Because when we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, it's evidential. It gives a, a personal expression to the Lordship of Jesus in our life. And that declaration is one that reveals a personal faith in Christ as well. This is why Paul said in Romans 10.10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess, you declare your faith and you're saved. You see, believing comes before professing. And professing Jesus as Lord is this, 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 this natural occurrence, natural consequence, natural outgrowth of our love and true faith. And if we're not convinced of the value, the goodness... Uh, uh, 
of anything, will we'll not declare it, will not confess it, will not, we'll not encourage people to be involved in it. I mean, if you've never eaten a green chili cheeseburger from Whataburger, you can't tell anybody how great it is, right? How many of you had? Oh, you poor deluded folks. There's just one person back there that's had one of those. Yeah, yeah. If you've never driven a Ford product, you can't brag on how great a Ford product is over everything else, right? Yeah. (laughs) No hecklers. Uh, How could you encourage anybody to go to Indiana if you'd never gone there and lived there and stayed there the rest of your life, which is really a great thing to do? You should all go to Indiana at some time in your life, yeah. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 would not have gone back to the village and have told the folks there, come and see the man who has told me everything about my life unless she had had a personal interaction with Jesus. Unless she hadn't had that connection with him, she wouldn't have said a thing about it. No matter... We just don't make the statement, Jesus is Lord, unless we have surrendered our will. We fall in love with Jesus. We've developed that personal relationship with him. I, I think that's the danger when we reduce the plan of salvation to a simple five-finger exercise or uh, the, the sinner's prayer. If what we believe in our head doesn't result in a changed heart, we're only going through the motions. If you've been led to believe that salvation is simply fulfilling a list of events without understanding what God has done for you and what God expects of you, I'm afraid that you have been ill-informed. When you declare Jesus publicly, you're telling the world that you've surrendered, you've given everything to Jesus Christ. And you say salvation is available to everyone. Paul said in Romans 10, Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call upon him. doesn't make any difference what you drive, what you look like, the clothes you've got, what color your skin is. None of those things make any difference. The only thing that makes difference is what Jesus has done for us. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It really comes down to this. It comes down to this one thing. Who is he to you? That's the question. Who is Jesus Christ to you? How you answer that reveals not only what you believe, but also where you're going to be spending eternity. Who is Jesus to you right now, today at uh, 1130 in the year 2023? If you say, Jesus is Almighty God, then you worship him. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah the prophet wrote, He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The correct response to that statement is to worship Him. That's appropriate. You see, the truth is, all of us worship something. All of us, whether we are an ardent believer, a loving follower of Jesus Christ, or we're the world's greatest atheist, we all worship something or someone. Instead of the cross, it might be a credit card. Instead of a hymn or a praise chorus, it might be that catchy tune or ad on the radio. Instead of the Bible, it might be that latest issue of a favorite magazine. Those things are not necessarily bad or they're not evil. But whatever dominates our heart and mind, listen, whatever captures our attention, drives our ambition, controls our schedules, is what we worship. God alone is worthy of our worship. A.W. Tozer, and a lot of you have probably read some of his writing, writes, What is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and the overwhelming love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that, that majesty that philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father who art in heaven. 
There is no greater joy in life than to bring worship to the one who saved us. I think it was Tyson was telling me last week, he was talking with some of the high schoolers here, and they were saying they love worship so much they can't wait for the next week. That is an awesome testimony. If we declare Jesus as our Lord, it means that we obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Man, there's all kinds of rules out there, aren't there? We're told to be quiet in the library, and we can't speed up and down the highway. And, and there are certain things that we should eat and certain things we, we should not eat. We want to be healthy when we eat, they say. One person wrote, did you ever see the customers at a health food store? Pale, skinny people who look half dead. In a steakhouse, you see robust, ruddy people. They're dying, of course, but they look terrific. You see, obedience to Jesus isn't just keeping a set of rules. It means that we pick up the cross of Christ every day and we carry that regardless of how difficult that may be. Even in the face of ridicule, if he's Lord, we obey him. If he's our Savior, you trust him. Go back to the story of the disciples in that small boat. Several of the guys, they're in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm. They've been in storms before, but this, this is a bad one. This is one of the worst they've ever seen. Suddenly they see someone walking on the surface of the water, some type of apparition out there. They, 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 they can't make out who it is. They rub the water out of their eyes, and it looks like a ghost. And from that person, they hear the words, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, Peter said, if it's really you, call me to come out on the water to you. And Jesus said, come on. Well, do you stay in the boat, or do you get on the waves? He steps out. He's doing really well. Peter is getting along great until all of a sudden he says, what in the world am I doing out here? Jesus said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Because, Jesus, the water was cold. It splashed in my face. I became aware this is not a reasonable place to be. You know, sometimes Jesus calls us to go to unreasonable places doing what we might think are unreasonable things. I don't think Jesus will ever call you to get out of a boat and walk on the face of the water, but he will call you to trust your life with him in every and, and all situations. If he's the truth and you've declared him as such, then you believe him. You believe who he is. Years ago, I read a letter to the editor. It was written, it was a caustic letter. It was condemning the church in so many different ways. It was signed only by the name liberal. It was interesting that the guy told me what he believed, not why he believed it. I think that happens to Christians at times. We confess what we believe, but we're not very good at articulating why we believe that, why that is true to us. The Bible says, Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The world responds by saying, that's narrow-minded. That's exclusionary. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? I believe in Muhammad. I believe in Confucius. I believe in all kinds of things. I don't believe in any of those. I think that all of us are on some wonderful journey on our own path to get to God somehow. And in the end, God's going to save everybody anyway. Lots of people sincerely believe something else. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You've got to make that choice. Either this man was, is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. How will you answer the question, who is Jesus to you? If he's God, you worship him. If he's the Savior, you trust him. If he's the Lord, you obey him. If he's the truth, you believe him. If he's Jesus and Lord, you declare him. Are you ready to declare, to confess, to profess to the world what Jesus has done in your life? Can you tell the story of the redeeming, saving, grace-filled power of God? Mike was in his 60s when he came to our church in Anna, Illinois. He and Shirley began to worship with us. Mike loved Jesus. You could see it in his face. You could hear it in his voice. He was eager to worship, loved to serve, a great Christian man. But what you have to know was that he had just been released from prison. He had spent the last 41 years in, in prison. You don't need to know the details, but 41 years before he went to jail, at 19, he took an axe and murdered his mother, father, and his 13-year-old sister. Well, you can imagine when he moved into our community and started coming to church, people had some questions. D, why don't you, <laughs> D, you're the preacher, why don't you go and talk with him and find out what's going on? So an elder and I went. We went into Mike's house. Mike and Shirley invited us to sit down, and Mike told us his story of why he is where he is. Left nothing unsaid, left nothing unrevealed he told us everything about his life didn't try to justify anything he only said this is what God has done in my life he became a Christian while he was in prison in all the years I served at Anna in all the sermons I ever preached on the topic of grace there was never one sermon on grace that left Mike tearless he was the epitome of grace he knew firsthand the power of redemption unconditional love he knew the touch of a forgiving Savior. He knew the meaning of amazing, amazing grace. You're thinking, I don't have a story like that. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness you don't. I don't have a story like that. I don't have this great life transforming testimony that I can give and tell people, this is who I was and this is what God has done. I don't have that. Yes, you do. Your story is my story. We share, we share the same story. I was on death row. Now, not literally, I wasn't in prison, I wasn't ready to be executed, but in a very real sense, before Jesus, I was on death row. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians in the second chapter, and he said, we were dead. We were dead in our sin and trespass. In the way that we used to live when we followed the ruler of this world who is now at work. 
He said, we are by nature, listen to this, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Man, have you ever been the object of anyone's wrath? But because of the great love of Jesus, I have been saved by grace and I've been acquitted. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. That's my story. That's, that's your story. Now, you've got more specific ones than this, but we all fall under this one. In a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to come up here, as Tyson said, to stand here, stand here, and tell us your story. There's cardboard up here. You come, take a piece, write your story out on that. Some of you have got some already prepared. Just come as you desire to. Take a few moments, show us who you were and now who you are. And let God get the glory for that. At the same time, at the same time, there may be somebody here who is still on death row. And you want out. You want out of prison. You want to know the forgiveness and grace that only God can give. Neither Tyson nor I nor the elders can provide for you absolution. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus does that. But we can help you find that absolution through Christ. If you need to experience for the first time in your life the forgiveness of sin, then why don't you come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that you will give us in just a moment to express how much we do love you, trust you, worship you. And Father, I pray that as these, as these boards of testimony will reveal, we'll see your work having been done and continually being done today in the lives of those who love you. And Father, if there's one here this morning that needs to take that first step at faith and declare you to confess your name as Lord and Savior, Father, may that happen as well. We lift you up praising you in Jesus' name. Amen.